This is Inside the Writer's Head with Kurt Dynan, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2016-2017 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community, all while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Our podcast starts now. Hi, this is Kurt Dynan. Cincinnati Public Library's writer-in-residence with another episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Today I'm talking with writer, high school math teacher, and all-around good guy Paul Tremblay. I first became aware of Paul over 10 years ago when I read a fantastic story he'd written entitled The Teacher. I contacted him through email and we struck up a nice friendship. We have a lot in common. We're both about the same age, both teach in high schools, and both are extremely tall and handsome. Where we differ, however, is that Paul has somehow found the time to write and publish five novels, two short story collections, and two novellas. His last two novels, A Head Full of Ghosts, about a possibly possessed teenager who becomes the focus of a reality TV show, and Disappearance at Devil's Rock, about a teenager who disappears under very mysterious circumstances, were published by William Morrow and Company. Both are critically acclaimed horror novels, and now even Stephen King calls himself a fan of Tremblay's, which is just another reason to hate him. (laughs) Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you, Kurt. Uh, And hello, Cincinnati. Sorry about the Bengals and Reds, (laughs) but I hear it's a beautiful town. Nice Uh, start. That's a good way to start the interview, right? (laughs) (laughs) Get the city on your side. Nice. It can only go uphill from here. Uh, You know, the last few days I was trying to prepare for this, I've struggled um, trying to figure out if it's okay to call you a horror writer. I mean, your last two novels are definitely horror. You write essays on horror and you love to talk horror films. But you also write a lot of like fantasy and speculative fiction and, you know, even crime fiction. So do you consider yourself a horror writer? Like, how do you label yourself? Um. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess like now it's funny you mentioned the 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago, if you asked me that question, I... I would have been, no, I'm not a horror writer. I'm, you know, I'm a writer who sometimes writes horror. You know, and at this point, I don't know, I really don't care what other people call me, I guess as long as they call me something. Um, so yeah, sure. I mean, people ask me that, are you a horror writer? Yeah. Um, you know, I will admit, like, the only times it feels sort of uncomfortable, and, and some of that's my own, I guess, you know, self-esteem issues, but some of that I feel like is also, uh, I guess, the power of that label within the wider mainstream literary world. Um, although I don't know how wide that world is, but anyway, I've been to a few, um, general literary conferences fairly recently. And a couple of times I've been asked what I write by like, say a poet or, or I was at this table of British authors who were very nice, but you know, some of them specialized in, you know, British historical fiction of the 1600s or something <laughs> like that. And they would ask me what I write. You know, in my head, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> right. So I just, I said, oh, I'm a literary horror writer. And, and almost unfailingly, the response is, oh, I, I don't read any of that. And I'm supposed to say, yeah, like, I, I don't blame you. Why would you uh, read something like that? And it's just so bizarre. Like, and it doesn't, you know, it hasn't really struck me how bizarre that is until fairly recently. Uh, the poet example happened at the L.A. Times Festival of Books and a poet who was up for like the L.A. Times uh, book award for, you know, for best poetry collection or whatever. You know, I told her I wrote literary horror and she started laughing and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. So otherwise me, myself, I really don't care about the label. I will say though, when I first started writing, 
I thought it was an important distinction to me because when I first started writing, I tried to force everything that I wrote into a horror story sort of setting. Um, and I feel I really, the day I said to myself, okay, not everything I have to write has to be horror. I'm going to, whatever story I have, I'm just going to let that story sort of be what it is, you know, try to serve that story to the best of my ability. So the day I said, okay, I'm a writer who, you know, who a lot of times will write horror. To me, that, that made a big difference. It, it freed me up to write other kinds of stories. You know, and really those other kinds of stories were the things that started my career, like, you know, the, the crime novels, Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland. Well, you're right, though. Like, you and I have been at horror conventions together, and there's a definite there, – it's not a stigma. It's it's There's just different groups. You know, you're not a guy who's wearing a shirt covered in skulls and you're wearing black makeup and like you're skulking around the place but there are those writers who are there you know and they write and, and their stuff's fine you know for what they're doing um and then there is and i think that's a a, a nice label the the literary horror you know the yeah. you you know yourself um laird baron um john langan i mean the stuff you guys write uh you know stephen graham jones it's it's definitely horror but there's just another level to it, you know? Um, so I, I, I really uh, appreciate and like your, your, your explanation there because it's true. Well, well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think both terms obviously are, are loaded with plenty of baggage and you know, that, that term goes the other way. Like if you say you write literary horror, there are horror fans who just roll their eyes. Like you're putting on airs. Yeah. Um, you know, and all I'm trying to imply is that, you know, what is, Sort of, sort of goes along with literary fiction, although literary fiction is clearly a genre in and of itself. But the idea that your horror story is also going to, you know, focus on, you know, besides the plot, it'll also focus on building characters and, um, you know, and symbol and all that fun stuff that maybe some other horror stories don't. Right, right. Don't well, with all the time you've spent in horror, I'm sure you've, like, developed philosophies and opinions on the genre. Like, what do you think makes an effective horror novel or a short story? Um, well, it's fine. I mean, I have my own, like, what I think works best for me as a reader and a writer, but, you know, the fun part is, you know, always just, um, you know, I feel like I'm so often running into examples that sort of break, you know, sort of the mold that I would put it in. Um, so anyway, you know, I, for me, my favorite kind of horror stories sort of roll around in ambiguity and, and really do focus on the characters and maybe even start from a place of empathy. Um, I know that's what I try to do as a writer. Is I want all the characters, even the ones who, you know, would be quote unquote, the villains or, you know, bad guys, um, you know, not a place of sympathy, but a place of empathy. You know, you want to understand why these characters are doing what they do. And to me, the ultimate horror is, you know, once this like terrible truth is revealed, then, you know, then come the hardest questions. You know, what are the characters going to do now that they know this thing has happened? Um, so to me, I, I, you know, a lot of a lot of my favorite horror stories come from there. But, uh, you know, I would just throw out this weekend, I finally got a chance to see Get Out, the movie, uh, which was great. Um, but it, it totally sort of breaks everything that I would say is my favorite type of horror movie because, you know, the, the villains in that, in that movie are so um, obviously, not, not cliche, but they're so obviously villains, right? There's no empathy for the, you know, for the, for the, for the, you know, for the town of affluent white people that are, and you shouldn't have empathy for these people who are, who are stealing black men and, you know, and, and I don't want to spoil the movie, but right. um, the, the bad people in that movie are bad. There's no there's no equivocating about it. There's no explaining why they do what they do. 
but you know, within the context of the movie, it, it so works because of all the social commentary. Right. Um, but if I were just to like describe that story and compare it to what I would say makes a good horror movie, it wouldn't fit my definition. So, you know, whatever definition anybody's going to give you, there's clearly going to be, um, um, I don't know, outliers or, you know, other ones that sort of break the mold. Well, it's funny you mentioned, I'm jumping ahead in the questions I sure. had, but, um, you know, one of the, the thematic connections I see in a lot of your stories and novels is ambiguity. Um, you know, your works do not have neat and tidy endings. Um, they leave a lot of room for interpretation. You know, you know, what, what even happened in this situation? You right. know? Um, what, what kind of draws you to, to these sort of endings and stories? Yeah. My editor likes to call me Mr. Ambiguous horror. She thinks that's <laughs> a fun, a fun label for me. I'm like, okay, as long as you publish my books. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's maybe this is like, I get asked often, you know, and I will answer the question. I promise, because <laughs> you know, I teach math. People are like, oh, have you ever written like a math horror story? I'm like, no. You know, that's I don't do that. But maybe the math part sort of creeps in because I don't know. I feel like for most of my you know waking day, I'm in, if, I'm not a scientist by any means, but I feel like I approach I approach reality from sort of a scientific or a skeptic's you know. Uh, you know, point of view, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, so it's like 95% of the day, I'm like, oh, that can't happen. Or, you know, I don't believe in ghosts or I don't believe in this, you know, I'm pretty much agnostic atheist. But, you know, there's like 5% of my day and it usually occurs at night before I'm by myself or I wake up after, you know, a creepy dream where, you know, suddenly like the unknown is a lot more scary to me and there's a lot more possibilities. Um, so I know, so what's most scary to me is the idea that our reality is a lot less real than we like to think it is, or it's a lot more malleable. Um, and it, re it relies upon your memory. It relies upon um, sort of what people tell you uh, about, you know, it relies on your reality, your world is, so, is based on, you know, for example, like if you're reading the news, you're, you're relying up upon reports from other people. Like you're just seeing images on a television, but you didn't, you didn't witness that. You didn't see it firsthand. So you're relying on all these different accounts and even your own memory you know, it gets to a point where, you know, so many years have passed, you end up remembering more the retelling of what, than opposed to what, what actually happened. So I don't know, I find that endlessly fascinating and also endlessly unsettling. And I guess that's kind of what I go for when I'm, or at least what I'm trying to, I guess, explore in many of my, my stories is, you know, the idea that reality isn't as real as you can think. And to me, that's where sort of, you know, the horror can sort of slip in. Boy, that was a rambly answer. I hope it works. No, but it, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, I think, you know, I talk to my students about this, like, you know, watching a film is a different experience than watching a novel. I mean, in reading a novel, because you have different expectations, you know, a film, a film viewer expects an ending, right? right. Ex expects some sort of black and white. There's no gray area. Like this is the ending of that. And when it doesn't do that, a lot of people are just aggravated. Um, I think readers are more open to interpretation. Um, you know, and I think that's why I always say, you know, readers are, are just smarter than just people <laughs> who just watch movies. Yeah. Um, in occasion, on occasion, you know, there are films that have, you know, that ambiguity and I, and I always seem to like them more. Um, I know right. uh, Lake Mungo, was was something you know you kind of use as an influence with disappearance at devil's yeah, rock yeah, definitely. and i just think that's a great example of um just a film where you're left with kind of 
all of these questions, but you know you've been through an experience. Sure. Um, and and your last two novels are that way. You know, I'm I'm wondering, do you get have you gotten questions from uh, readers asking you for definite endings to a head full of ghosts or a disappearance at Devil's Rock? Oh yeah, definitely more so with a head full of ghosts than disappearance at Devil's Rock. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah, I get I get asked fairly frequently about the ending of A Headful of Ghosts, and I of course will never tell. <laughs> Do you um, have an answer in your head? Yes and no. I mean, yeah, but I feel like it can change. I don't right. know. I mean, when I started the book, I had a definite sort of this is what the book is about, but that changed partway through the writing of the book. And you know, this isn't giving a spoiler away for anybody who hasn't read it, but I definitely for that novel wanted to build carefully build both sides or I guess there are multiple sides as opposed to just two, but you know, the, the, there's plenty of evidence for readers to read that book and think, okay, something supernatural is happening here. And you know, there's a couple of different ways that supernatural could be going as well, but another reader there's pl- could read it and there's plenty of evidence to say, no, there's nothing supernatural happening here. There's all very rational explanations. Um, I don't know that, that was fun and hard, hard to do. And, I think if you are going to go for an ambiguous ending, you sort of have to earn it. It just can't be like a cheap Twilight Zone twist. I mean, you have to do enough of the the groundwork within the rest of the story for that for that meaning to fit, or for that uh, that sort of ending to fit. Um, right. I don't know. I think readers and film goers are sort of equally, <laughs> or can be equally distrustful of a ambiguous <laughs> ending. I just think I don't know. Maybe that. I think, you know, reading has become such a more marginal thing to do as opposed to going to the movies. I, I think there are still plenty of people who would see a movie like Lake Mungo or um, one of my other favorite movies of recent years is called Take Shelter. That that has a really ambiguous ending, which I love, and I think it totally is earned. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I, I knew there was a risk of pissing readers off with a head full of ghosts in particular. <laughs> Um, but I was willing to take that risk because I thought most readers would sort of get, would get the point of it, would get sort of the ride. Well, great. No, I think that's a great explanation because you thought your other answer on ambiguity was rambling. I mean, that, that does wrap all that up nicely. Um, one of the things that's always struck me about your writing, you know, from the first time I read one of your short stories is, um, is your experimentation with style. Uh, you know, you've had stories told through blog comments and, you know, one summarizing the contents of a series of photographs, um, the Harlequin in the train, right? Is that what the title yeah. is? Yep. You know, you have the reader highlighting certain words as they read. Yeah, it was annoying, um, huh? <laughs> right, but it's it's just you playing with style. You yeah. know, even even uh, you know the last two novels have you know blog posts or diary entries. Um, you know, you've always seemed to kind of want to be playing with style. Uh, and experimenting and i'm i'm not even sure what the question here is but like what draws you to that <laughs> um yeah it's a few things i mean part of it honestly is just that it breaks it up a little bit it's kind of fun <laughs> to write that way right um i just really adored reading um uh house of leaves by mark danieluski uh yeah. he, you know he does all sorts of you know style and typographical sort of tricks but the key is that it works for the book like it it serves a story it's just not there as a gimmick I mean, if it's there as a gimmick, the reader can figure it out pretty quickly and it gets annoying. Like there was a novel called The Roar Sharks, The Raw Sharks Test or something like that, which did, which had other, you know, all sorts of typographical stuff. And I thought it didn't work because it was just there to be there. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, you know, I know as a writer, if, you know, if I, oh, I'd love to like do a story 
you know, that's told in the blog forums. Like, well, why? I would have to have a big reason to do that. You know, so I'm, I'm very, you know, aware if I'm going to do something goofy with the narrative style, that it has to be there for a reason. Like, um, you know, everything has to serve the story. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Um, I, I don't know. The other part of it is I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Most of the stories that I've written take place now or, you know, when I wrote them, it took place in the now of then. Right. Um, you know, so I'm doing the best I can to, to communicate a story that's going to be relevant to people who are reading it right now. And I don't know, for so many of us, you know, we read blogs or, you know, we, we text each other or, um, you know, there's, there's mentions of Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And it's just a normal and cell phones. And it's just a, it's a part of at least our existence in the West, right. In the United States, it's a part of our day to day, um, you know, reality show with a head full of ghosts, obviously. So, you know, I, I'm, some of that is me just really trying to root it into the now and actually make a statement about the now. I think the worst advice any writer could be given would be, oh, you can't put stuff like that in your story because it's going to date your fiction. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to hold up, you know, and to me that it, it really infuriates me. I've been on, I've actually been on like a few big panels where a writer talked about, oh, I won't put that stuff in because it, you know, it dates my, my story and I won't be able, you know, people who read it 10 years from now, you know, won't be able to find their way in. And it's such a presumptuous bullcrap answer. It's like, dude, like to presume that someone 10 years from now with all the books that we have printed out there, um, they're going to sit down and read your story. Um, so to me, the idea of deathless prose in that sort of way, the idea that there's some sort of now universal format that you, your fiction must be. Is there no cell phones allowed? How about no cars? I mean, how about are your computers allowed or do we have to go back to the telegram? I mean, it's just it's idiotic. Right. Um, so uh, to me, the key is, again, to go back, it has to serve the story. If you're going to put this stuff in there, it has to be there for a reason. Um, it has to serve the story. It has to be integral either to the characters or to the plot. Um, you know, I think a perfect example of that would be William Gibson's Neuromancer. Um, you know, the opening paragraph of the story, you know, it mentions a, a gray, I, I'm going to butcher what the actual opening line is, but, you know, it mentions a sky that looks like a fuzzed out television screen. Right. Um, you know, even though like, you know, if our high school students were to read that now, they wouldn't necessarily know what he means, but they would based on the context of the book and, and what he does with the rest of the novel. Right. I mean, I completely agree with you on this because the book has to be grounded in a reality, right? So, right. you know, you do have to deal with things like like cell phones. I mean, you know, just even following plot logic, it's like, well, no, they would they would post on the internet about this, right? right? I mean, there would be, you know, kids would be tweeting about their their classmate who's disappeared and you know why haven't the police been called and all of that stuff has to be dealt with in one way or another and it and it right. does it does date the piece of course it does but um but like you said that's okay <laughs> you know um the, the reader readers are very understanding you know yeah. uh, and they move past you know, even when I read books now that were like MySpace is is mentioned, I mean, it's kind of a funny nod. I'm like, oh, yeah, that yeah. was a big thing for a while. And now it's not, you know, Twitter and Facebook are going to go away. But, you know, I use them in my, you know, I use them in my writing because it's a thing the kids know and the readers know right now. Right. No. And if I, you know, if I'm for, if we're fortunate, I'd still be around in 30 years and some schmo is reading a head full of ghosts. I don't know. I, f I feel fairly confident that 
they'll get what's going on. Not only will they get what's going on, you know, part of the fun of reading it then will be, this is a snapshot of what living in the United States in, you know, 2015 was like. Right, right, exactly. So, I, I mean, within really a year, you had both A Head Full of Ghosts and Disappearance at Devil's Rock published. Um, lots of critical and public acclaim. And, you know, I've always felt like you were a very well-respected writer in, like, writing circles. But, you know, these two novels have kind of thrust you into the spotlight um, in a lot of different ways. Like, how's that experience been? I mean, you're just a guy, right? I mean, you know, and I don't think people yeah. really get that. Like, you have a family. You you teach math, you know. Right. Um you know, how how have you handled that and how has that experience been? Well, I mean, I mean, it's been fun. I mean, it's definitely these books have been, especially Headful of Ghosts, have been, you know, by far my most successful novels. But I don't know. I uh, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm in too much of a spot. Like I still feel like I'm sort of like a speakeasy kind of author where people are like, hey, have you read this? I mean, um, you know, is you, is I'm sure, as you know, as a high school teacher, there's plenty of opportunities to be humble during the day yes. when that happens. Um, you know, I, I've in low moments, I've told some of my math classes, like when there've been pains in the asses, like you don't understand. There are people outside of this building who think I'm a really cool person. And they're like, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not true. So I guess that part of it is easy to not let you know any of the successes sort of go to my head. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe part of it is my first go around with a big publisher. It didn't really go so well. Uh, right. You know, I'm I'm very proud of The Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland, you know, for a myriad of reasons. They did not sell great, uh, did not sell well. Maybe it's because of my poor grammar. Um, so I don't know. I, I know it could, you know, it, it could go away fast, especially with the situation or how in flux publishing is right now. Um, it could all go away in a second. So I'm just, you know, enjoying it. And really the only thing I can control is just writing the best books that I can. So hopefully it keeps going. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the book I'm working on now. Um, that'll be out next summer. So, so we'll see. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, like that moment you realize how out of your hands it is, you know, you can do all the interviews you can, you know, send out all the tweets you want and show up at as many conferences as you want. Sure. But right. But the book is out of your hands. You know, all you can really do is write it as as well as you can um, and then kind of send it out there and hope. Right. It's kind of like a child. Like, yeah. you know, it's like I've I've gotten this child as uh, as well armored as I possibly can. Now it's time to send him out into the world and, and hope for the best. But then suddenly uh, Stephen King tweets out that a head full of ghosts scared the hell out of him. Um I mean, what is that like? You know, I mean, the guy's like the most popular writer of our generation, right? And yeah. and he's read your book. Like, does that give you pause? Like, to think, oh, oh shit! Like, I, you know, now Stephen King's reading this. Like, like oh yeah. What is that? Uh, well, so it was funny. I, I mean, it was what August nineteenth, two thousand fifteen. I used to have you didn't <laughs> memorize. It's right around there. Um. I, you know, I tried sending him a book at the beginning of the summer and, you know, his uh, personal assistant is a very nice, uh, very nice person. And she said, you know, we, he has this big room of books and, you know, if he, if he happens to pick it up, he'll pick it up. You know, so I knew it was like, ah, you know, he's probably not going to get to it, but, you know, it was worth a shot. And, um, you know, so because uh, the Headful of Ghosts came out in J early June. So now it's like late August. I'm like, ah, you know, it's not going to happen. So I, I was home moving furniture. It was really hot out. No one likes to move furniture. It was sweaty and cranky. 
And then my phone just started exploding because people had saw his tweet before I did. You know, so when I saw it, um, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I got emotional. I, you know, I teared oh, yeah. up. Um, you know, I started reading, never mind writing, because of Stephen King. So I stopped moving furniture. I took a few adult beverages out of the refrigerator, <laughs> just opened my laptop and, you know, for the next few hours, just, you know, watch people reacting to it online and just sort of soaking it all in. So, no, it was definitely one of the, the highlights of my writing career. And, you know, that was very, very obviously nice of him and generous of him to to continually, you know, for all writers, you know, he, he does so many, he, you know, he's not afraid to talk about the movies he likes and the books that he likes. And he's, you know, just a very generous guy in that respect. It was such a great day. It was so fun to watch that happen. I mean, I, I was like, Oh my God. And I remember, uh, you know, a friend of ours, John Mantooth, I remember just texting him. I was like, have you seen this? (laughs) Um, and I just imagine like there's a type of validation there. And I don't, you know, writers don't necessarily write for that. But when Stephen King says, I loved this book, um, I can just imagine, you know, yeah, you would, you would have, you would get emotional. You would have to stop like yeah. whatever you were doing, you know, this is like Stephen King. And like you said, you know, he's the reason I started writing and reading. Right. Um, and I was just so happy for you that day. I just thought well, it was so awesome. Um, no, it was a lot of fun. And, and Stephen, like crashly in terms of sales, I mean, it it gave the book like a second tale, a second life. It's, I, I feel like it, it'd almost be impossible to measure the, the impact it had on A Head Full of Ghosts. But again, that's the luck factor, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, the book is in a room <laughs> with a lot of other books. And for whatever reason, he picks yeah. it up and is like... Well, I did come to find out later that a couple of acquaintances who, who are friends with Stephen, both uh, either had sent him a book or... One of them might have sent it, but they both told him, hey, you have to read this book. So he had a couple of people in his ear, you yeah. know, which was so nice of those guys to do because they didn't have to do that, obviously. Um, yeah, it's so just, no, I'm very fortunate in many different ways. Right. No, it was, it was just great. And, and I, you know, all of the success you've had, I've always just been, you know, I know there are writers who get jealous about this stuff, you know, and like, why does he get all of this, you know? <laughs> um, but just, and, and I've never been that way. Um, you know, I believe the tide kind of rises all boats or raises right. all boats. But, yeah. um, you know, on that day, I really was just so happy for you. Uh, and I knew, I mean, it's like a sales thing and that helps. And, and But there's a validation thing there. And, and yeah, it kind of really puts you out there in the spotlight for, for a while, which is just great. Yeah. No, thanks. So I have like a nuts and bolts question. Because um, right. we have a lot of writers who listen to this show and, and – uh, when I do my workshops and whatnot, I get a lot of questions on finding time to write. And like I mentioned, you know, you have a full-time teaching job, family responsibilities. Um, how do you find the time to write as much as you do? I mean, I'm assuming you're like on <laughs> deadline too. Yeah. Now my next book is due in August. So, um, and how close are you to finishing that one? I'm, I'm in really good shape. I, oh, good. I, I should have like a, a draft done by the end of this month and then I'll have time to print it out and take my time before I send it in August. So, I mean, if all goes well, knock on wood. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, uh, geez, I don't know. I, I, I've been able to, for one, I've been able to do work in like weird places. Like I, I don't have the luxury for, you know, I, I've read about people talk about having like a writing um, ritual or something like something to prepare, you know, and having like a, a dedicated writing space. I mean, it's nice to have a dedicated writing space, believe me, but you know, these are things that <laughs> I can't afford so, I mean, I do most of my writing, you know, there's a desk at home that I do it at. And it, it, during the school year, it's usually happening at night. If I can squeeze in an hour, hour and a half, uh, when it's summer and I'm home, I'll, 
I tend to do more in the morning, like maybe when the kids, my kids are a little bit older now, so they tend to sleep in a little bit later, so I'll, I'll write while they're sleeping. Um, but honestly, like I did a huge chunk of, or a big chunk of Disappearance of Devil's Rock when I was in the bowels of Babson University's gymnasium. My son was at a baseball clinic like four or five Sundays in a row, and he was going to be there for, for two hours. You know, so I was going to be there for two hours waiting for him. You know, I was two hours I had to use. So, you know, I had my laptop out and headphones on. You know, there were baseballs whizzing by and basketballs on the other end. But, uh, you know, I was working on the book. So I think just through having to have to do it, um, I've acquired the skill of being able to focus in and, and block out what's happening around me. Maybe sometimes to the annoyance of my, my family. <laughs> um, but for me, it's about taking advantage of the time when I get it. Yeah. Um, you know, I am as guilty as procrastinating and spending too much time online as anybody, but, you know, you have to make some choices. Uh, it's why I was at lunch today with another writer, you know, who isn't a, a full-time teacher and, you know, doesn't have kids at home. And, you know, he's asking me about all these TV shows. Like, I haven't, you know, I haven't watched it. I haven't, I, I never watched Breaking Bad. I never watched these. It's like, what do you mean you never watched? Like, I can only do so many things, you know, I, so I don't watch a lot of TV. I mean, um, other than maybe sports and there's a few shows that I watch, but to me, that's sort of the thing that has to fall by the wayside. If I want to get my work done, hang out, you know, be a good parent and, you know, read because reading to me is, is as important as the writing part of things. You know, there, there are things that I have to sacrifice and as much as I enjoy TV and movies, you know, I don't get to watch as many as I would like. Yeah. You have um, to make the sacrifice. Yeah. So I, the other thing I would tell writers, cause I feel like I, I've seen this sort of, essay think piece crop up lately and it's almost it it strikes me as almost mean-spirited um there's been some writers who you know are successful talking about you have to write every day and if you don't you should just give up and i think that's a terrible thing to say to writers it's okay if you miss a day or two or you know i've gone weeks even months between writing at times um you know i wouldn't necessarily advise that you know nothing's getting done if you're not writing but you know the idea that I mean, you're going to be anxious enough as it is because you're not writing. You just can't, you know, the trick is not to let that sort of crush your spirit or crush the will to write. You know, it's a, you know, it's a job. You know, are you going to work your job seven days a week? You know, maybe <laughs> it's okay to give yourself some time. You know, obviously you do have to, at some point, sit down and write, but uh, I just happen to notice that's come up for, uh, geez, within like the last month, I feel like I've read three or four essays about, you must write every day or you're never going to get the book done. Which um, is like the number one piece of writing advice I give people is you have to find out what works for you and do right. that and not worry about what other people tell you you have to do. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the frustrating and the, the fun part in terms of like learning to write is it, there is no one right way. It is a right. very sort of personal experience. But I can understand as a new writer, that's very frustrating because you want someone to tell you what to do. Um, but yeah, you just kind of have to find, you know, there's, there's great advice out there. You just have to know it's not, it's not all prescriptive. It's not all, you know, the magic pill you have to no, find. It's not, it's, work it's not gospel. It's not gospel. Right. And, and I mean, I, I'm guilty of that in the beginning too. Just thinking there has got to be just one magic formula to make all of this work. And finally, right. I just kind of realized, no, just whatever works for me. So yeah, that's great. And like you said, using the time you know, when you've got it. Right. Uh, and so many people just kind of don't realize when they have that time, like kids practices 
are a great time, you know, to write. They're just practicing. It's like Alan Iverson. It's practice. You know, right. you're not doing it during. I, yeah, I almost have a harder time getting writing done when I don't have a lot of things going on because <laughs> when there's a lot of things happening, it forces me to, to time management. And it says, okay, right. I have to, this is a window and I have to take advantage of it. And then when summer happens, I can feel myself, ah, I can do it later today or I can do it later tonight. Um, but anyway, yeah. All right, so my final standard question uh, is dinner party. You did prepare? <laughs> I, I hope because I, it's the one reason I, t- I give people this question because otherwise, right. yeah. So you can invite one writer, one musician, mm-hmm. one actor or actress, and one miscellaneous person uh, to, to a dinner party. So, right. so who are you bringing? So for a musician, um, I would bring Bob Mould uh, of, of Husker Du and Sugar. I mean, he's really... You know, aside from Stephen King, he, he's really my artistic hero. I mean, I've, um, I think I, because of Bob and Husker Du and Sugar, you know, I wanted to be some sort of artist. Like my first, I first, actually, before I started getting serious about writing, I messed around with guitar playing and writing and writing songs and all that stuff. But um, I quickly found out I was a better writer than a musician. So um, I've been very fortunate. One of the things I do with my writing is I stalk many of my favorite musicians. Yes, you do. Um, and I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> so I've, I've had, you know, crazy opportunities and just so much fun being able to meet a bunch of my favorite musicians. It's just, you know, to me, it's just totally wild. Um, and Bob, I, I've never, I've never really had a chance to, when I was younger, like 22, I think I was drunk after a concert and he happened to be there and I talked to him for like two seconds, but that's not the same as, you know, actually having a conversation uh, so Bob would have to be there. Um, and I would have to have Stephen King at, at the dinner. We, we have not met in person. We've exchanged some emails, but I would, I would enjoy having Stephen there. Uh, actor, actress. Um, I had to, that was the hardest one to come up with. And I, I zeroed in on Sigourney Weaver. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because she, I mean, she's amazing. And I, and considering who's at the table, I think it would just be fun to have Sigourney, Stephen and myself sure. <laughs> and Bob. And, you know, we can talk about Alien, obviously, and, and a whole host of other movies. And then the fourth person uh, would be Lisa, my wife, uh, if, because it would just be a lot of fun. If nothing else, I would need someone I know there to prove that I had dinner with these three people, too. You know, I guess two of the three. Did you? I mean, yeah. Okay. I was like, okay, Bob Mould. And I was like, it's going to be Stephen King, right? I was like, yeah. he might throw a curveball there. Um, Sigourney Weaver, I, I would never have guessed, but, uh, and then the wife answer is safe, obviously, yes. uh, and, and a good one. <laughs> um, that about wraps it up. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add or, you know, I'll kind of give you the final word here before I close things out. Uh, geez, no, uh, read Kurt's books if you haven't, or, but when's the, is the second one coming out? <laughs> if I get it, ever get it finished, let's yeah, hope. Okay. So work on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. No, don't get caught. It's not fun. I'm awful with titles and I just, I just remembered it correctly. Didn't I? Yes. Yeah, that is it. Thank you. <laughs> Pretty good. Paul Tremblay is easily findable on Twitter and Facebook and maintains a blog at thelittlesleep.wordpress.com. His most recent release, The Excellent and Creepy Disappearance at Devil's Rock, is now out in paperback, as is all of his other works, including the award-winning A Head Full of Ghosts. Definitely check those out. Until next time, this is the Cincinnati Public Library's writer-in-residence, Kurt Dynan, for Inside the Writer's Head. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head.
Inside the Writer's Head podcast is produced by the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. It was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or select branch locations. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Learn more and read the Inside the Writer's Head blog on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. Subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss future episodes and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.